The kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. You have tuned in to Kingdom Encounter with Glenn Blakeney. Connect with us for powerful, life-changing teaching and guest interviews that will inspire you with hope and equip you with the knowledge and skills needed to fulfill your destiny in the kingdom of God. Now, here is Glenn Blakeney. Amen. I want to want to just deal with the topic today that I believe is very applicable, very relevant to what a lot of Christians are going through in their spiritual journey. I want to talk about entering rest, entering rest. I'm going to unpack some things today, I believe, that will help you to be able to move forward to that place that God has for you in Christ in terms of experiencing everything that the new covenant has made available to us. How many know that we are not waiting on God to do anything anymore. You believe that? Yeah, it's true. You know why? Because Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 says, we have, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. We have been blessed. Past tense, with how much blessing? All spiritual blessings or every spiritual blessings? Second Peter 1 3 says that God has given to us in old King James Elizabethan English. He hath given to us all things pertaining to life and godliness. He has done it. He's given to us all things pertaining to life and godliness. And just as the children of Israel were given the promise that Canaan, the promised land, would be theirs. There's still a requirement, though, to go in and to occupy to possess by faith and obedience the promises of God. So there's a big difference when we realize and we have that revelation and understanding who God is and what he's already promised us, what he's done, what he's made available at the cross. And so instead of, you know, the, there's one thing that concerns me is in, when we talk about revival, revival is absolutely biblical. It's something God wants us to experience I think it was Charles Finney that said years ago, though, a revival presupposes a declension. In other words, if something needs revived, guess what? If you need to revive a person, what does that say about the person? Okay. So, revival presupposes a declension. Revival presupposes that there's something or someone that needs resuscitated. So we have to recognize that. So when we talk about revival, we're saying we need life. And we are talking about the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. But he's already given to us everything that we have need of, but we have to learn to possess it by faith. And so instead of waiting for revival, we need to start releasing our faith and experiencing the present reality of God's riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Amen. That's good preaching. Whether you believe it or not. God wants us to experience everything that He's made available to us. So I want to talk about how we do that this morning. Entering rest. Deuteronomy chapter 8 is our text. Deuteronomy chapter 8. I'm just going to read two verses in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Verse number two and three. Let me kind of uh, give us the historical backdrop here. 
Deuteronomy is a book that was written literally at the end of Israel's 40 years of wandering. God is about to bring them into Canaan, the promised land. Joshua is about to lead them. They're about to cross over from the wilderness, across over the, the river Jordan, and possess what God has promised them all along. Hallelujah. So God is speaking to them through his servant Moses at this point, and he's saying, there's some things that you need to know before you go in and possess the land. And in the eighth chapter, here's the first thing that he says. Look with me in verse number two. He says, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you. That man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now, the version I just read to us is actually the New International Version. Some people call it the nearly inspired version. But the reality is it says something a little bit different than the New King James and the King James. It says, remember how the Lord led you these 40 years in the wilderness. It doesn't say, remember that God led you. It says, remember how God led you. So he's saying, I want you to look back in retrospect, and I want you to remember the journey you went through these past 40 years. Because there was a purpose in the journey. God had a reason for them being in the wilderness. And yes, it is true that it was never his intention that they spend 40 years in the wilderness. It was because of their disobedience. But yet, God still took them into the wilderness. In fact, when Moses spoke to Pharaoh, he said, The Lord says, let my people go that they might worship me in the wilderness. Now, a lot of the children of Israel just thought that God was taking them into the promised land. And they didn't really catch this whole thing about the wilderness. They, it was something that they really didn't understand. But God was going to take them into the wilderness as a necessary prerequisite to be able to promote them into their destiny. So the wilderness is God's plan. How, how many believe that this morning? Just say to your neighbor, the wilderness was God's plan. So, here's what I want you to understand about this journey. The journey that God would take them through in the wilderness had a purpose, had a plan, but ultimately it was to bring them to a destination. And there really are four specific ways in which the children of Israel would experience a change once they crossed the River Jordan and entered into Canaan. Things were going to be very different for them once they crossed that river and came into Canaan. Because in Egypt, they experienced Egypt as literally as the place of not enough. When they would cross over the Jordan into Canaan, they would experience it as a place of more than enough. But the wilderness for the past 40 years was a place of just enough. God says you're crossing over. Things are going to be very different in at least four ways. Number one, they would experience the fulfillment of all of God's covenant promises. Hallelujah. 
Everything that God had promised to them, they would see the realization of that in their lives. After, uh, after Joshua had led them into the promised land, he made this statement in Joshua 21, verses 43 and 45. So the Lord God gave to Israel all the land of which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it and dwelt in it. Not a word failed of any good thing that the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel. All came to pass. Hallelujah. So that's the first uh, realization of what they would experience when they crossed over into Jordan. They would experience the fulfillment of all of God's covenant promises to them. Secondly, they would experience literally the fullness of all of God's blessings. The Lord told them in Deuteronomy 8, 7 and 9, The Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks, streams and deep springs gushing out into the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing. You will lack nothing. So it's a place where they would experience the fullness of God's Covenant blessing, not only his promises, but the fullness of his provision in their lives. Thirdly, Canaan was the place where they would experience rest from their adversaries. Very clearly, God speaks to them about this in Deuteronomy 12, verse 10. It says, God is going to, is giving the land God is giving you to inherit. And when you cross over into it, he gives you rest from all your enemies round about so that you dwell in in safety. It's a place of freedom from their enemies, a place where they would dwell in safety. And lastly, it would be a place of habitation, not a place of visitation. In other words, Canaan would be the place where they put down roots and they stop wandering. How many want to stop wandering? How many have been in the wilderness long enough? And God says, when I bring you into Canaan, he said, you will stop wandering. You will rest. You will put down roots and I will establish you and I will build you up and I will prosper you in that place. Now, the journey was a necessary part in God's plan, the process of bringing them into Canaan. But understand this, the wilderness was to be not a place of, of vacation in the sense of, of enjoyment, but it was to be a place, nonetheless, that they temporarily passed through. In other words, they had to pass through it to go to it. God was saying that the wilderness is a necessary place, but I don't want you to stay there too long. Your ultimate destiny is Canaan. Canaan was to be their vocation place, not their vacation place. Canaan would be the place where they were to dwell. And so when we look at the new covenant and we realize that everything that Israel experienced in the natural is to us something that we are to experience in the spiritual. Because we too are on a journey as God's people. Our journey is not to a geographical location. It's to a place called rest. And it's literally found in the man Christ Jesus. Jesus told us when he was on the earth in Matthew chapter 11, he was very clear. He said, 
Come to me, all you who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is our Sabbath rest, Colossians 2.17 says. In Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 12, God says, I gave the children of Israel my Sabbaths that they might know that I am the Lord that sanctifies them. So in other words, the Sabbaths were a type and a shadow pointing to a reality that would be experienced in the new covenant in the person of Jesus Christ. So the rest that God has called you and me to experience will never be attained without having that relationship with Jesus Christ. We read in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 3, that, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 8. Now, if Joshua, meaning Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, had succeeded in giving them rest, God would not have spoken about another day of rest still to come. Think about this. What Israel experienced in the natural, we have experienced, we have been given, we have inherited in the spirit. For us... We have been given exceedingly great and precious promises. God has been faithful. Every promise that he has said to us, the Bible says that they are yes and amen in him, in Christ. He's the one who gives the yes and the amen. That everything that God says is ours by virtue of the new covenant is yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Secondly, Jesus has provided for us everything that we have need of. When he sent his disciples out and he said, take no money bag and, you know, don't take an extra change of clothing with you. And they came back and they, re they rejoiced and they reported what the Lord had done. He asked them this question. He said, did you lack anything? And they said, no, nothing, nothing, nothing at all. My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. No matter what it is that we have need of, God has promised to provide for us. Jesus said, if we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, all these things will be added to you. God is not a liar. God is not a man that he would lie. What he says is true. If for some reason, we are not experiencing the reality of his promises in provision in our life. It is not his fault. But there is a journey that is involved that helps us understand and be prepared to experience everything that he has. Jesus also has given to us freedom from our enemies, a place of security. To live in him. In fact, the word Jesus, Yeshua, which is also, it comes from the Hebrew word Yehoshua, which is transliterated Joshua in the, in the Greek language. Then we understand this, that what he's talking about literally is a place of freedom, a place of freedom, because the word Yeshua literally means God Delivers. God saves. Now, Matthew one twenty one. You shall call his name Jesus because he shall save his people from their sins. He has come to save 
people from their sins. Israel wanted to be emancipated from the rule of Rome, but Jesus said, no, you don't understand it. The root cause of all oppression and tyranny and everything evil in this life is sin, and I've come to deal with the roots. I've come to pluck up the roots. So He doesn't save us in our sin, He saves us from our sins. And He becomes our deliverer. The word salvation in the New Testament is soteria. The verb form is sozo. Very interestingly, if you study the word sozo, it's used in a variety of ways when speaking of the work of redemption in the New Testament. Number one, sozo is used of forgiveness of sins. In Romans chapter 10, verse 13, we see the spiritual application. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Shall be sozoed. Secondly, it's used of deliverance from demons. Luke chapter 8, verse 36. He who had been demon-possessed was healed, was sozoed. Thirdly, it speaks of psychological wholeness. In other words, Jesus came to give us a sound mind, to heal our emotions, to make us whole. So we don't have to be jacked up anymore. Hallelujah. James 1.21, speaking to Christians, says, Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Speaking to Christians, receive the word which is implanted in you. The word is in us, which is able to save your soul. The Greek term is suke, which we get our English word psyche or psychological. So he's dealing with the mind, dealing with our emotions, dealing with our will. No matter what you've gone through in life, no matter how badly you've been hurt or disappointed, no matter what has happened to you mentally, psychologically, Jesus has come to give us a sound mind and to heal our emotions, to give us emotional stability and mental equilibrium. That is His plan in the new covenant. He's come to make us whole in every way. Lastly, the word sozo speaks of healing, of sickness and disease, of infirmities, of maladies. In James chapter 5, verse 15, we're told the prayer of faith shall sozo the sick, shall save the sick, or shall heal the sick. Hallelujah. What an incredible salvation that we have experienced that it's a comprehensive deal that God has given to us everything that we need to become whole in every way. I love what Jesus told us to pray in Matthew chapter 6, verse number 13. He said, I want you to pray that you would be delivered from evil, or some translations say the evil one. Very interesting. If you do a word study on that term, literally the word evil is poneros in the Greek language. It's a derivative of the word ponos, which means pain. And that word, which, is, which means pain, comes from a root word, which means poor. So Jesus is saying, I want you to pray that you would be delivered from evil. And evil speaks of sin, but it also includes pain and it also includes poverty. That you, because in the beginning, when God created all things, there was no lack. 
They had everything that they needed. If, I don't know, for those of you, if you've ever gone through poverty, I'm talking about real poverty, abject poverty, where you don't know where you're going to, where you don't have enough food. You don't know how you're going to survive. There are p- perhaps some people in this room who've gone through that. For the most part, we are foreign to that type of experience in the West. But the reality is, it's an enemy. It's not God's will that we suffer that way. He came to set us free from sin, from Satan, from sickness, and from scarcity. He's come that we might know Him, and we might know Him in the abundance of His goodness. Hallelujah. Now, listen to this. Jesus... John the Baptist's father is prophesying of the coming of of Messiah. Here's what he says in Luke chapter 1, verse 74 and 75. When the Messiah comes, he will grant to his people, to the new covenant people, that they would be delivered from the hands of their enemies and that they might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of their life. The plan of God is that we would experience him in his fullness without fear that we would be able to serve him. How many days of our lives? Mm -hmm. So the wilderness is not to be our residence. The wilderness is a place of just enough. It's not the place of more than enough. The wilderness is part of God's plan, but it is a place of visitation, not a place of habitation. Canaan is the place where we're called to live. The wilderness, as I said, has a purpose. The reason for the wilderness is it is a place where God says, I will prepare my people. It's very clear when you read the, the Pentateuch, when you read the, old, the first five books of the Old Testament, that God has a reason for bringing His people into the wilderness. The first reason, why is it that He didn't just take them directly from Egypt to Canaan? If you look at a map from Ramses, Egypt to Canaan, it's literally a straight shot about 250 miles, and it's a journey that could have easily been done on foot, in less than 30 days because there was a super highway that the Romans had built that literally went straight from Egypt into the east. It's a place where God says, I could have taken you quickly, but he specifically says that I'm not going to lead you the easiest, quickest way. Come on now. How many know that God really doesn't care so much about our happiness as he's more concerned about our holiness? Come on now. There's a reason and a purpose for God taking us into the wilderness. Now, let me just explain what he was doing with the children of Israel and how it how it helps us today. Number one, he did not take them directly to uh, Canaan because they would have had to have traveled through the land of the Philistines. God says, I know if you travel through the land of the Philistines, you will be intimidated. Exodus chapter 13, verse 17 and 18. 
And it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. And the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. So God is saying, now remember, these people were slaves for over 400 years, roughly. There was a a time of slavery for them. And so as slaves, guess what had happened to them? They had been beaten. They had been oppressed. And so now they had their morale was literally in the basement. They they literally didn't have any resolve, any determination. They had no will to fight. I was ministering in Liberia not too long ago. And one of the things that if you're familiar with Liberia and West Africa, they've been in a roughly, I think it was about 15 years of civil war. It was very, very evil what had happened. It was clearly rooted in the demonic I met a, a, a biologist from, from Europe, and I was asking him why he was there. And he said, well, we're replenishing the animal population in the forests here in Liberia. And I said, well, why did you have to do that? He said, because during the war, because of the war, there's no animals left. And I said, well, what happened to the animals? And he said, the people ate them all. Oh. So they literally ate all the animals. And... I continued to ask them, and I said, so an election's coming up. Do you think that there's a possibility that civil war could erupt again? And some of the pastors that I was with spoke up as well, and they said, no, we don't think so. Because the people are sick and tired of war. They're sick and tired of fighting. They don't have any more resolve to fight. So the children of Israel had lost the will to fight. They had nothing in them that desired to fight. How many know, however, that there's a time when we must fight? But when the enemy is so beating you down and you have no morale and you have no fortitude at all and you just can't fight, guess what? God knows you're not ready. So what does he do? He takes you into the wilderness to prepare you to fight. The second reason... Why he took them into the wilderness is not only did they had no will to fight, but they had no skill to fight. As slaves, literally, there was no one among them who had learned warfare. So God said, you, you don't know how to fight. You're not military people. You don't know how to conduct yourself. You don't know how to use weapons of warfare. So I know that there's a time of training that you're going to have to go through. So God says, I'm going to bring you into the wilderness to teach you warfare. The wilderness was going to be their basic training, their boot camp. But the last reason, the most important reason even, why God took them into the wilderness is found in our text in Deuteronomy chapter 8. God says, I led you into the wilderness. It was me. In fact, the Lord says, I'm going to take full responsibility for making you go hungry. Come on now. God says, I'm going to lead you away. You never went. I'm going to cause you to go hungry. I'm going to make you be thirsty. So because there's a reason, there's a purpose in the trial. I'm trying to humble you. I'm trying to bring you to the place where you will recognize and know 
that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He's saying, I'm going to shift you from living in the natural to learning how to live in the supernatural. Bread speaks of the natural. It speaks of the earth. God rained down manna from where? Heaven. It speaks of supernatural provision. So God is saying, I am going to prepare you in the wilderness. I'm going to teach you two things while you're in the wilderness. Dependency and sufficiency. You're going to recognize that you don't live by bread. You don't live by the earthly. You don't live by what you can do. But you're going to be taught for a season of time how to depend and trust in me. I'm going to take care of your needs. I'm going to give you food. I'm going to lead you. I'm going to guide you. I'm going to literally cause it. Even your clothes don't wear out. So you're going to learn that you have to trust me. In the wilderness was the place of preparation, the place of training for reigning, of schooling for ruling. It was a place where God said, I'm going to prepare you for what I want to give you. I think I said this last week, but have you ever, I said it somewhere recently. Have you ever seen someone... You know, like a younger person in particular experience an inheritance. They inherit a lot of money, maybe when they're like, you know, 21 years of age. And then they just squander it. Yeah. You know, that's what we'd be like without the wilderness. We would not be prepared for what God has in store for us. Proverbs 20, verse 21 in the New Living Translation says... An inheritance obtained too early in life is not a blessing in the end. God is saying, if I just took you from prophecy to destiny without teaching you dependency and sufficiency, you wouldn't be able to handle it. You wouldn't know what to do. You would forget me. In fact, if you read the, the entire context of the verses that we, we've already looked at, he tells them repeatedly in this eighth chapter in Deuteronomy, when you cross over into the land and you prosper and you experience the fullness of my promises and all of the provision that I've told you would be yours, make sure you don't forget the Lord your God. So even after 40 years of learning how to depend upon God, of seeing God lead them and, and take them through the wilderness, he still admonishes them. He finds it necessary to warn them to make sure you don't forget me. When Israel was in the wilderness, not only did they have to depend upon God, not only did they have to learn that literally he was their sufficiency, they didn't need God plus. They needed God, you know. It's amazing how sometimes you say to people, well, you know, God, just pray, just look to God. And they go, well, God and, you know, God and. I'm like, there's no God and. There's no plan B. It's God. Jesus is our sufficiency. In Him we live and move and we have our being. The Bible says that He will provide all of our need according to His riches and glory. In Christ. It's in Christ. 
Everything we need is in Him. And He gives us more than what the world could give us or what we could do for ourselves. Because the Bible says the blessing of the Lord makes rich. And it says He adds no sorrow to it. The word sorrow means painful toil. When we secure our own blessings and things look good, I want to tell you, there's a lot of painful toil to it. But when God blesses us, it is a blessing that causes us to experience His goodness in our lives. And there's not a lot of pain. There's not a lot of, of things that we have to do in terms of striving in, in order to maintain it. Because, see, what happens is if we birth something, we are responsible to sustain it. But when we receive a blessing, God is responsible. Because it's, He is the originator. He is the initiator. And he's the one who ensures that what he has promised, what he has begun, he will bring to completion. Thanks for tuning in to Kingdom Encounter with Glenn Blakeney. To learn more about us, including how to connect to our kingdom community, please visit our website, awakenations.org. Again, that website address is awakenations.org. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts so other listeners like you can receive powerful, life-changing teaching. We appreciate that effort, and we hope you'll join us again in the next episode of Kingdom Encounter.